Uh, Colossians, if you don't have a Bible with you handy, you can read the words on the screen behind me. Let's stand as we read God's word. Colossians chapter one, as we begin in verse number one. The word of God says through Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. You may be seated. All right, so, you know, Pastor Thomas stole my joke. I haven't seen you all since last year. Uh, and so since I can't do that, like that was half my introduction. So let me jump into this. How's your New Year's resolutions going? You doing good? Did you know that the second Friday in January is known as National Quitters Day? <laughs> Literally, it's a, it's, a, it's a holiday, all right? University of Scranton did a study a few years ago that found that 80% of people who make resolutions on January the 1st fail to keep them by January 17th. So today's the 7th, you've got 10 days. You can make it, you can make it. Why do we struggle with resolutions? Why do we struggle with those things? You know, like some of you have a resolution, I'm gonna lose weight and feel great, I'm gonna save money, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna be a better person. Well, why, why is it that we struggle with that? You know why I think we struggle with it? It's because white knuckling is just hard. And I think that sometimes just the pain of change is extremely difficult. Like I tried a journey with another guy here, uh, we were gonna give up sugar for the month of January, I lasted five days. I thought that was pretty awesome. Like day four, I was ready, but I made it one more day, and then for the glory of God, I had ice cream. Amen. Ice cream, that's right. Here's what I think. I think we have this idea that if I do something, or if I don't do something, then I can be something or someone I've always wanted to be. So if I just do this, I can be that. And the problem is, is that when it gets really hard to do that, or when it gets really hard not to do that, we can't hang on. I think this is what happens to a lot of people, even in the church. See, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions, and maybe that's why you're here today, which you're, we're grateful you're here, and you're like, I'm gonna be a better person. 2024, I'm gonna be a better person. I'm gonna go to church more. I'm gonna read my Bible. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna be nicer to people. I'm not gonna cuss as much. I, I'm gonna stop doing some bad habits. I'm gonna be the person I've always wanted to be, and God's going to love me and accept me, and all of my problems are gonna end. The problem is this with that thinking. If your thought process is I have to do something to be something, then what does it fall on you? It falls on you doing something. Well, what if you can't do it? What if you can't do it good enough or fast enough or strong enough? I mean, when is it ever good enough? 
So I wanna just share with you something today. If you'll stay with me, just stay with me in this message. I know you're so prone to wanna get on your phone or sleep or whatever. If you'll stay with me, I'm telling you, what you're gonna hear today may change your life forever. Because what if being the person that is loved and accepted by God is not on you, but all on Jesus? Would that change how you view the Christian life? Because there is a tendency in all of us, the natural default mode of all of us is to think this, I've gotta do something in order to be something. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not what we do, but what he has done. And reality is we tend, we tend to drift away from Jesus. We tend to drift away from what he's done. And that's why Paul is writing the book of Colossians. Paul is writing to a group of believers he's never met before. And he's writing in prison. He's doing jail ministry from the inside. And he's writing to a church he did not start but was planted by one of his disciples, a guy by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras, it seems like, the best we can tell, was in jail with Paul. And Epaphras is telling Paul, hey, listen, this church there in Colossae, man, they are on fire for Jesus. They are reaching their community. They are full of faith. They are radically dramatically changing Colossae for Christ. And they love each other. Pastor Paul, you have never seen a church that loved each other like these Colossian believers. And so Paul here is writing to them. And the reason why is because Epaphras was saying, listen, Paul, they are growing. They are doing great things in Colossae. But man, they got a lot of pressure from the culture around them. I mean, some of the people, the Colossian believers, they've been watching Fox News. They've been watching MSNBC. And they either go to the right or they go to the left, if you know what I mean. They either go to the right that says, I've got to add something to Jesus, or they go to the left and say, I don't even need Jesus at all. And so Paul here is going to write to the Colossians to deal with this particular issue of drifting away from Jesus. And what he's going to say is that Jesus is supreme above all and over all, and all you need is Jesus. See, don't get the idea that just becoming a Christian means I don't need Jesus anymore. Don't get the idea that just because I trusted in the gospel that I don't need the gospel anymore. The Christian life is not I've got Jesus, now I move on. The gospel Christian life is that I have Jesus and I grow deeper and deeper in him. And so today we're gonna look at the introduction. Sometimes introductions may be a little boring, maybe we skip over them, but I'm telling you what Paul is writing here will transform your life if you just allow the Spirit to speak. And so what you're gonna see is that Paul begins his letter by teaching that it's only Jesus. And Paul points believers to the basic truth uh, that their identity in Christ is the ground for activity for Christ and eternity with Christ. And so identity is the ground for activity for Christ and eternity with Christ. So let's just unpack that. What do you mean? What do you mean? Here we go. Number one, identity in Christ. So Paul here is writing to a group of people he's never met before. And so as he opens it up, he says, Paul, my name is Paul. Hi, Paul. He introduces himself. Now, you think, well, everybody knew who Paul was. Well, Paul kind of tells a little bit of who he was. But here's the deal. Who was Paul really? He was born with the name Saul. He was from the town of Tarsus. His dad and his mom had dual citizenship. He was a Roman citizen with had a Jewish heritage. And Saul 
when he grew up, he ran with like the uber religious, like the uber, uber religious. And then as he got to be a younger man, he ran with a vile, angry, violent group of religious people whose sole purpose in life was to persecute and torture Christians. And so one day, Paul, the, this guy named Saul, who was uber-religious, was taking a group of Christians or was on his way to the town of Damascus in Syria, it's there to this day, and he was going to go and persecute Christians, and while he was going his way, he ran into Yahweh. Jesus showed up to him. And instead of going his way, he is now going Jesus's way. And it changed him. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus radically, dramatically, and instantaneously saved the apostle Paul. Paul got a new name from Saul to Paul. So he went from being a jihadist to a Jesus follower. And now he not only has a new name, but he has a new identity and he's got a new purpose and mission. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. If you were to have like the least likely to know, follow, and be the apostle of Jesus, the apostle Paul, Paul's picture would be there. The word apostle means sent one. And so God gave him a new mission, a new purpose in life. And then notice what he says here. This is Paul introducing to himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, here's this phrase, by the will of God. That is, Paul said, I didn't sign up for this sucker. <laughs> this happened to me. And as we look at Paul's life, and it, even as you look at your life, you, you really, I mean, at, on the front end, it says, well, I decided to follow Jesus. But when I really think about it, he chose me before I ever chose him. That really what Paul understood here is what you and I need to understand is that we really had no part in God choosing us either for salvation or for service. It was all of God, and God is the one who sought him. God's the one who saved him. God's the one who called him. And what Paul says here is that I was called by the will of God. And listen, the apostle Paul, outside of Jesus, towers probably the second highest in church history. The apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. By the time of his death, Paul, either directly or indirectly, there was a church planted in every major city in the Roman Empire. Paul, even to this day, oceans of ink and reams of paper have been written about what Paul has wrote about. And the only explanation for a life like that is the call of God. You have to understand that for Paul, this wasn't a job. If this was a job, Paul would have quit. I mean, think about this. He gives his resume of all the bad stuff that happened to him. He said, I was shipwrecked three times. I was snake bit. I was stoned. And I'm not talking about a Rocky Mountain high, like somebody was throwing and pelting him with rocks. People were running him out of town. He would walk into town. He had the spiritual gift of starting riots. They threatened him. And then on top of all that, he had the daily pressures of helping lead God's people and pastoring and shepherding. And if, listen, if that was a job, Paul would have quit. I would have quit after the first stoning, all right? <laughs> but this was a calling. This was a calling. Do you understand that all believers are called into ministry? If you're a Christian, you're called into ministry. It's not a matter of if, but where and how. And I believe that most believers, if not all believers, may have a special calling to a specific ministry. I mean, and don't get the idea that, well, I was called to be in the astronaut program and just take up space. <laughs> no. 
God has a specific thing for you to do. And there's a difference between a job and a calling. You can quit a job, you can't quit a calling. A job is something you choose. A calling is what God chooses for you. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know God's will for my life? Well, God's will can be found through God's word, be found through the spirit of God, working through the word of God, can be found through wise counsel. You know, for the apostle Paul, the resurrected Christ called him specifically and set him apart for this calling. For some of you, as you're driving on Livingston this afternoon, don't expect some flash of light and you to get a text message from Jesus. It may not happen. But here's what I have found, that often God will speak to us through a deep burden or God will speak to us through a deep pain. It's been said that your deepest hurt is often your biggest ministry. I don't know how God's called you. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what you're burdened about. But God's got something for you. He didn't just save you to sit sour and soak. He saved you to serve. Paul says, this is who I am. I didn't choose who I am. God chose who I am. And God made me who I am. And now I'm gonna write to you who are just like me. You're the saints. Verse number two, to the saints. That word saints is holy ones. Who is Paul talking to? He's talking to people who were in Christ in Colossae. Who, who were the people that were in Christ, Christ in Colossae? Well, they were drunks there and they were jerks there and gossips and perverts and liars and knuckleheads and meatheads and self-righteous people. But what does he call them? Saints. You know, our church, we have thousands of people and we're not all perfect people. As a matter of fact, I don't know anyone who is perfect here and if you think you are, you can't join. Because <laughs> you'll mess it all up. I mean, we've got knuckleheads and turkey heads and meat heads and crackheads and deadheads in our church, but that's okay. Because the Bible says we're saints. 200 times in the Bible, it calls believers saints. There are two types of people in this world, those who are saints and those who ain't. If you're a saint, you're a partner. If you ain't, you're a prospect. Now, when you think of the word saint, what do you think of? You think of like Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, the Apostle Paul. What do you think of? Some of you grew up Catholic. We got any Catholic folks in the room? Yeah? Amen? You say amen to that? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't want to. Like, I don't want anybody to know. I'm in a, I'm in a Baptist church. I don't want to get outed, okay? But some of you that grew up Catholic, like you hear the word saint and maybe you think, you think of some cosmic superhero endowed with supernatural power to live an extraordinary life. You know, listen, and I've traveled the world and Eastern Kentucky, okay? <laughs> and I have spoken to people and listen, they pray to saints. They have little saint emblems and icons and, and little lucky charms that they're praying to this saint and that saint and the other saint. As a matter of fact, the Vatican has standards for sainthood. Uh, a guy, Father James Martin wrote a blog article a few years ago and it says there are 10 steps to becoming a saint. You wanna know how to become a saint in the Catholic Church? All right, number one, you have to be Catholic. All right, I'm out. Number two, you have to die. I'm out. Three, a local devotion grows up around your memory. So you have people that, oh yeah, St. Alan, or, or Alan, man, he was so great. And, we're, and people have candles and all kinds of stuff, and they're, oh, he's awesome. And then four is your life has to be investigated. So, okay, Alan was a great guy, and now we gotta see, was he really great, kind of great? Like, was he on some sort of list or something, you know? You'll catch that in a moment. 
Number five, <laughs> after you've not made that list, um, your, the local bishop sends your case to the Vatican, okay? So the Vatican, and then number six is they, we pray to Alan for a miracle, okay? And then if, if Alan provides a miracle post-mortem, then the Vatican investigates that miracle, and if the Vatican discerns that that miracle was a legit miracle, then the Vatican, number eight, declares Alan blessed. So then, after that, there's another prayer to Alan for another miracle, just to make sure. <laughs> if that turns out legit, then Alan is a saint. Saint Alan. And what happens is that people start praying to me, candles are made in my honor, Schools and churches are built with my name on it, and I'm very busy in heaven answering prayers until the end of time. That's how you're a saint. Now, I'm not, listen, I'm not belittling or, or besmirging. I'm just telling you that's the process to become a saint in the Catholic Church. But how do you become a saint according to the Bible? You know how you become a saint according to the Bible? By simply being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that anyone who is connected to Jesus by faith alone in Christ alone is in Christ. And so if you are in Christ, that means that your past, present, and future sins have been taken away through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection from the dead. That's what it means to be in Christ. Now, some of you say, all right, well, Pastor, so you're telling me that I'm a saint. Well, I don't act very saintly. I'm a sinner. Well, yes, because on earth, you're still a sinner. You're a sinner by nature. You're a sinner by choice. But in the eyes of God, you are a saint. One pastor said it this way. He said, sin will explain some of what you do, but sin explains the totality of who you are. Sin will explain your occasional activity, but saint will explain your constant identity. So according to the Bible, believers' primary identity was established in Christ, by Christ. We are saints. Yes, we'll sin on the earth because we're still sinners, and that explains why we do what we do. But our primary identity is saint, which explains who we are. And when you know who you are, that empowers you to stop doing what you shouldn't do and do what you should do, and one day you'll never sin again. So if your primary identity was sinner, then you'll sin forever, but it's not. And so the moment you die is the moment you stop sinning. So Paul says, listen, this is who I am by the will of God. This is who you are. You're saints. Verse two, B, grace to you. God's unmerited favor, grace to you. Paul starts with grace in verse two and he ends with grace in verse 418. He says grace to you in verse one, verse two, and then grace with you, four verses 18. We enter with grace, we, live with, we leave with grace. Understand this, Christian, all of life in the Christian life is a life of grace. Peace, not just personal peace, but whole life well-being. Grace to you, peace from God our Father. Notice he says you are saints, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. Here's what he say. This is important. Write this one down. Our relationship with God is not performance-based. It's paternal. All other religions in the world are, relig are performance-based. That is, 
if you obey, then you're accepted. If you obey, then you'll reach nirvana. If you obey, you might go to heaven. The gospel is that because you were accepted in Christ, you have the ability to obey. And if you are in Christ, you are God's child and God loves you more than you can imagine. Then in the eyes of God, you are precious. You know, I remember the first time that, yeah, I have three kids. I've told you this, Aaron, Andrew, and Anna. I remember the first time that April allowed me to watch Aaron by myself. Listen, that was a big deal. My wife is a wonderful mother, wonderful wife. And, and so I, I had this moment. We had, she was going out with friends. I had a lazy boy recliner. Remember those lazy boy recliners, you know? And I remember there with, with Aaron in my hands, and I was just, I was thanking God. I said, God, thank you so much for the privilege of having Aaron as my son. You know, because, he, listen, he was really sweet back then. I mean, he was so sweet. And, and so, that's a joke. He's still sweet. All right. And so I was rocking him, and then April left me a bottle, and I fed the bottle to Aaron. And then I had this little rag, and I did a little, you know, where you little burp the baby. He, you know, he did a good burp, you know, the Brumback burp, and it had that, and all this, that, and the other. And I'm looking at the kid, and guess what he does? He vomits on me. <laughs> you know, I didn't get rid of him then. No. You know what I did? Cleaned him up. I loved him, and he's still around to this day. Why? Because he's my son. He's my child. Do you understand that that's exactly what we do with God? God blesses us, makes us his children, blesses us with so many things, and guess what we do? We vomit on him. But he doesn't throw us away because we're his forever children. Listen, this is what I'm getting at. This is your, if you are in Christ, this is your identity. You are a saint. You don't have to go through 10 steps. You just go through one step and Jesus did it all. And you're his child forever. That's your identity. And it's from that then grows your activity, your activity for Christ. Verse three. So Paul says, all right, we thank, he tells them who they are, tells them who he is, who they are. Verse three, we, thank, we always thank God for you when we pray for you. Paul never met them, but yet he was praying for them. We'll talk about that more next week. He was thankful to God for them because of what God was doing in and through them. This church was on fire. This church was reaching Colossae. This church was making a difference in their community, and it was growing like crazy. Why was that? Because these gospel activities were flowing from gospel identity. They were doing these things because they were these things. Think about this. You understand that you act naturally out of the understanding of who you are? So like this afternoon, when you go home, you, when you walk into your house, you're, you act naturally. And the reason why you walk into your house and you act naturally is because you know that you know your identity. You know you belong there. You know that this is your home. And you don't think about it. And so when you go home this afternoon, you open the fridge, you don't think about it. You can put on whatever you want on television. You can turn the AC up or down. You can do whatever. Why? Because it's your house. It's your, you belong there. And so what we're learning here today is that behavior flows from belonging. Behavior flows from identity. Activity flows from identity. So he says in verse four, here's what we're thankful for. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We've heard of your, of your reliance on Christ. 
that you are trusting God, that you're doing some radical things for God. You know, it's been said that faith is a commitment to trust in God more than you trust in yourself. So these Colossians were living out radical faith and trusting in God with how they lived and they trusted in God more than they relied on themselves. Here's a question for you. Do you trust God more than you trust yourself or do you always leave your options open? See, there has to be areas in our lives where we have humility to not trust ourselves but to trust in God. Paul calls them faithful brothers. They were faithful because of their faith in a faithful God. We sang about that earlier. One of the big things we celebrate here is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness means that he never changes and he always keeps his promises. If God says he's gonna do it, he's gonna do it. We're living in days of low commitment. We're living in days where people will consistently fail and that's the only consistent thing is that people are inconsistent. We live in a day where everyone is flaky and unfaithful. And for believers, we should be people that are marked with unshakable commitment and faithfulness because we do what we say we're going to do because we're in Christ. He says, not only have we heard of your radical faith, your reliance on Christ, but secondly, we've heard of your love that you have for all the saints. You are not only reliant on Christ, but you're a reflection of Christ. Listen, this is very important. The fruit of faith and the proof that your faith is real, is love. Don't tell me you trust Jesus if you're a jerk, right? Real faith is seen through genuine love. See, love is the proof that the new identity has taken root. What did Jesus say in John 13, 35? By this shall all men know, people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. But notice he says here, that you not only just have love, this is back in Colossians, not only that you have love, but he says you have love for all the saints, not just some of the saints, and not just for the New Orleans saints, but for all the saints. All here, you know what, I looked up the word all, you know what it means, all. (laughs) So that doesn't just mean people like you, or people you like, but you have love for people who are unlike you and people you may not even like at all. Why? Because you are part of a new community based on your new identity. Listen, when you know who you are, it impacts how you live, right? It impacts how you live. So, I'm gonna give you two examples. When you become a parent, do we have any parents in the room say amen? Amen, Amen. all right. When you become a parent, that's a new identity, right? Like it affects everything. You even get like a dad bod, okay? (laughs) When you're a parent, you, you have new responsibilities. You have a new lifestyle you didn't have before. Well, April and I are in a new experiment. We're now dog parents, okay? We have a puppy. Her name is Lexington Lucille Brumbach. (laughs) Lucille, you say, where'd that come from? That's my great-grandmother's name. And I love the name Lucy, okay? And and then Lexington is where where the Lord is, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, so here's the deal. So, like, before we had this dog, (laughs) we never wanted a dog, okay? And we would kind of snicker at people who had dogs and and, and so, like, I can't believe they spend all this money and do all this work. But when you become a dog parent, things change. 
Like you are now taking plastic bags with you at all times, all right? Like I would have never, ever, ever in my life imagined I'm gonna bend down and pick up my dogs, you know what, okay? Guess what? I do it every now and again, okay? But it changes, why? Because you're a new identity. So let's go back to being a real, like a parent-parent. When you are a parent-parent, you have a new identity, okay? And it's who you are. And now, you do things you would have never done before. So you, like when you're a parent-parent, you're changing diapers. I've never thought of changing any kid's diaper until I had a kid. You are sacrificing. If you are a parent, you sacrifice, right? Time, money, sleep. And you, listen, good parents do this instinctively. Why? Because of who they are. Activity flows from identity. That's what I'm getting at here. When you know who you are, it changes what you do. And so without a proper sense of identity, you will operate out of insecurity. If you don't know who you are or whose you are, then you don't know what you're to do and you'll be tempted by a thousand things the world tells you to do to try to figure out who you are and you'll end up being in despair. But if you are in Christ, you have a secure identity and that informs how you live. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are a saint you are set apart for the worship and work of God with faith and love. And so listen, Christian, you don't have to live for identity. You live from identity. Because it's not what you have achieved for God. It's what you have received from God. Amen. So identity is the basis. Activity flows from identity. And guess what? Not only is our activity grounded in our identity, but our eternity with Christ is grounded in our identity. Verse five, he says here, we've heard of your faith, we've heard of your love, and the reason why is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The reason you have faith and hope is because of your identity, and your identity is a guarantee of your eternity. See, this idea of hope is not optimistic anticipation. It is an objective reality that is laid up. That word laid up is reserved or guaranteed. Your identity in Christ guarantees your eternity with Christ. Why? Because you have a new identity. And because you have a new identity, you have a new citizenship. Now, there's a difference between residence and citizenship, Okay? So some of you all, like, you know this because you're snowbirds. And so, like, I live in Florida some of the time, but my citizenship or where I really like my establishment is somewhere else, okay, or vice versa. But let's go beyond that. Let's go beyond that type of dynamic and just think of this. I travel quite a bit. I love to travel. And so I may be in England. I may be in Israel. I may be in India, wherever. Those are places that I go. And when I'm there for a week or two weeks, that's my residency, okay? I may be there for a little while. But my citizenship is not those places. My citizenship is where? It's in America. I'm an American citizen. Amen. Praise God. I'm have, proud to be an American. Or at least I know I'm free most of the time. Um, <laughs> and so what you have to understand, and, and this is going to connect some dots. Stay, I tell you, stay with me. All right. Give me like eight more minutes. We're almost done. Is that, listen, my residency right now is on earth, but my citizenship is in heaven. Okay. I'm only here for a little while. Okay, let's say at best, God gives me 80 years, 85. Compared to eternity, this is a short time. So my residency might be here, my eternity 
is up there. And so what this means, listen, Chris, if you are in Christ, this earth is as close to hell as you'll ever be. If you're outside of Christ, this earth is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. Paul says this in Philippians 3.20, this is to believers, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are dying, we are molding, we are molting because we're not from here. But when we're truly home, we will be what we've always wanted to be. And you'll never be what you've always wanted to be here. You'll only be what you've always wanted to be there. And it won't be because of what you do. It's going to be because of what he's done. Wow. So I'm going to end with this. And I'm going to teach you something. I'm telling you, if you will just pay attention to this next moment, this will change your life in eternity forever. Stay with me. I want to talk to you about the three tenses of salvation. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm saved. Anybody ever heard the word, I'm saved? And you're like, like, don't come up to somebody, are you saved? Saved from what, okay? But when we use that word saved, it's kind of a churchy word. It means something. So I wanna talk to you about three tenses of salvation. And I wanna, I wanna kind of use some illustrations here. And we're gonna be using this this entire series. And so this is ketchup, mustard, Chick-fil-A sauce. Okay. So we're gonna explain your salvation with this, okay? So the first word when it comes to salvation, so if you, if you came up to somebody and said, I'm saved, well, that means you're justified, okay? I'm saved. I'm free from the penalty of sin. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I am justified in Christ, okay? The next word is, with mustard, is sanctification, I am being saved, okay? I am free from the power, I'm being freed from the power of sin in my life and I'm being holified by the Spirit, okay? And so I am saved, I am being saved, okay? And then this Chick-fil-A is glorification. (laughs) I will be saved. I will be free from the presence of sin and will be perfect and sinless just like Jesus. All right, let's review. The ketchup is justification, which means I am saved. saved. I am saved. Sanctification means I am being. And glorification means I will be. All right. So the problem is, is that we get things out of order. And so a lot of you grew up in the church. You grew up religious. And what you do is you get the mustard and the ketchup backwards. And you think, I've got to do something. I've got to be sanctified. I've got to be holy so that God will save me, that God will justify me, that I can be forgiven. And so what you think is, I've got to do something in order to be something. And what you've done is you've gotten sanctification confused with justification. Here's the golden chain. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay, justified, sanctified, 
glorified. This is the basis of everything. When you are saved from the penalty of sin because of Jesus Christ, then you have the power to live the Christian life. And one glorious day, when you die or he returns, you will become just like Jesus. Okay? Again, we get it confused. You do not do in order to be. You be so that from the be you can do so that you will ultimately be what God's created you to be in Christ forever. And one day you will never sin again. One day. I believe that some of you have been coming to church all of your life and you think, I just gotta be a good person, I've gotta do the right things and maybe, just maybe, I'll go to heaven. And I come up to some people and you have no idea how many times I come to people and say, hey, if, if you died right now, do you know where you'd go? And they would say, I hope heaven. And you say, well, why do you hope heaven? Well, I'm a good person. Let me tell you something. Good people go to hell every day. Safe people go to heaven all the time. You have to be saved. You have to give your life to Christ. You have to trust in him. It's not on the basis of what you do for Jesus. It's on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. That's good news, isn't it? That's a whole lot better than religion. That's a whole lot better than the hokey pokey. That will really truly change your life. And so what Paul says, he says in verse five, he says, this is what you heard in the word of truth, the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And this good news has come to you, but the good news, it didn't just stay with you. It's in the whole world and it's bearing fruit and it's increasing. That is this gospel is not what you do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for you, this is gone viral. This hope of salvation and eternity is gone viral. It's gone global. It's advancing people are being changed by it. You know what a Stanley Cup is? I'm not talking about a hockey cup, okay? A few, few little bit ago, I, I, we, we dabbled into the Stanley Cup world. So, so I think it's Starbucks and Stanley Cup decided they were gonna work together and they created a Cosmo pink tumbler. So let me show you a picture of that. Normally, they cost, this is for Galentine's Day, okay? In case you were wondering. Normally, these tumblers cost between $45 and $50, $55. But right now, there is some sort of viral frenzy for these things and you, you can't even get them in the stores. Right now, I just looked before I came up here, you can get one for about 400 bucks. Some of y'all are gonna go home right now and paint your Stanley, right? <laughs> it is a frenzy. People are going nuts. I've gotta have my pink Stanley, Okay. If you've got one of them, put it on eBay, okay? <laughs> Shucks, we might have some people put it in the offering plate. Okay, here you go, Pastor. Greater Thanks 2024. <laughs> Sell her now, okay? I'm just kidding. Here's what you gotta understand. There are a lot of frenzies. You met, there have been so many frenzies about people buying stuff that they don't need. Buying all kinds. People just go nuts. Frenzy, gotta have it, gotta have it. And it goes viral, and you know what happens with almost everything that goes viral? It stops going viral, right? 
because fads come and go. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a fad. It doesn't come and go. It comes and it grows and it grows and it grows and the gospel advances and it has advanced throughout the centuries. I mean, think about this. The gospel, even this week, advanced to one of the most remote places in the world among the Q people. The Q people in Africa, in one of the most remote places, celebrated the first baptisms of the first ever converts of a people group this week. The gospel advanced this week through our FBA high school students who went to Nice, France to be at the very tip of the spear to go to a location where 0.00% of the city are believers. The gospel is advancing in places like Western Europe and in Amsterdam where we have a church plant there where people are finding hope and true freedom. They are refugees who left where they were and have found true freedom in Jesus Christ. And there is a picture of one of our partners baptizing a new sister in a baptistry that you and I purchased. The gospel is advancing. It keeps going and going. The gospel is advancing in Naples. The gospel is advancing in Cape Coral because it's not a religion. You want to know why the gospel advances? Because there's no one like Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life that we could not live. Jesus died a substitutionary death that we should have died. Jesus gives us a gift that we cannot earn. He took our condemnation and gives us his salvation. He took our death and gave us his life. He took our sins and he calls us his saint. And he took those who were his enemies and made him a part of his family. There is no savior. There is no king. There is no one like Jesus. So don't add to him and don't take from him. Just trust in him and find your identity in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that your spirit will move in this room. That, God, we would see that you are our living hope. You are our only hope and that we would never abandon you. And Lord, for those in this room who have never trusted you as their savior, it's not a religion. It's not a Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Methodist. It's, it's none of that. No logos, no labels, no egos. It's all that Jesus has done. And I pray, God, that for those in this room or those watching online who have never given their lives to you, that today would be the day they would surrender their life to you. Help them, Lord, today. You are a living hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing about our living hope.